Hello, and welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and today we have on Crispin Sartwell as a guest. Crispin is a professor of philosophy at Dickinson College. He received a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Maryland, a Master of Arts from Johns Hopkins University, and a PhD from the University of Virginia. Crispin is an individualist anarchist and political philosopher with significant interest in analytic philosophy, aesthetics, and theory of knowledge. He has an extensive and professional experience in journalism and music criticism and has written and published around 20 books. Without further ado, Crispin Sartswell, welcome to the show. Hi, Joel. How you doing? Not bad. I'm, I'm enjoying my uh, early day off here, and it's actually quite nice outside, so I, I'd say it's a pretty good Great. day over here in Austin. How about you? I'm good. I don't think I've read, I've written 20 books, though. That seems a little strong. Really? 10 or <laughs> 12. I, re- I read 20 on your blog. I read like 18 I, I, on your I blog. Yeah. Okay. There might be quite a few, I guess. <laughs> It depends on what counts as a book and what counts as being an author and stuff like that, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. All right. <laughs> I remember distinctly reading at least one of your books. Oh, good. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. I loved it. It was about seven years ago I read your book, Against the State, an Introduction to Anarchist Political Theory, not to be confused with the ANCAP Manifesto by Lee Rockwell. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I got to say, it was definitely instrumental in helping me to shape my understanding and acceptance of anarchism. And I I guess I should also note that this book was given to me by an anarchist who stole it from the library. (laughs) You uh, still got it? Yeah, I still got it. Of course I do. Yeah. I'm not giving it back. I still have books from my junior high school library, you know, from 72. Yeah. (laughs) Someday I'll bring them back. Racking up those fees, that's for sure. No doubt. All right. Well, uh, what's this book all about and why did you decide to write it? Well, okay. Uh, I guess it's been a while. It it was at 2000, let's see, six, eight. I'm not sure. I just arrived at Dickinson College as a like a leave replacement for a person who was teaching the philosophy courses or the theory courses in the poli sci department. And so I taught like section after section of, you know, basically introduction to political philosophy. You know, running through Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, Locke, you know, uh, Rousseau, whatever, Marx, maybe Thoreau. And I hadn't really written a lot straight on political philosophy before that. And I hadn't really taught directly in political philosophy that much before that. But, you know, going semester after semester through all these famous arguments for the legitimacy of state power, I found myself getting more and more hostile to these arguments like, you know, social contract theory or utilitarian justifications for state power. 
and just like feeling like that they were incredibly fallacious, actually, and just trying to rationalize oppression, essentially. And so like I just kind of got my irritation out, even though like, you know, OK, so when you're teaching these texts, though, you have to at least take a stab at showing why they're plausible. Right. So like I had to sort of in some way present them sympathetically sure. over and over and over again. Yeah. And so I, I guess I just went home and like wrote my attack on them because I didn't feel like I could bring that out or at least not fully in, in the class. So I guess it was a but, you know, I've been an anarchist all my life, basically, or since I could really think about these things. Mm-hmm. I guess I always plan maybe to address some of those questions in a book or other contexts. Right, right. Well, why don't we see if we can quickly go through some of the more popular justifications for state power and why they fail? Sure. Let's start with social contract theory. What's wrong with that? Okay. Yeah, and basically that is the structure of the book. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of other things you could do and should do with anarchist theory and, you know, much more positive things, really. But uh, it's a fairly short book dedicated to, you know, just primarily destroying the philosophical arguments for justifications for state power. Uh, And I guess that's maybe more like a ground clearing exercise than a full-fledged anarchist vision of the world or something. But yeah, okay, so social contract theory, which we would associate with Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, those are the famous ones. There are many versions, so including contemporary versions. I mean, maybe John Rawls has a version of it of some sort. I mean, okay, so, so the question is, what justifies the coercive power of the state? All right, so first of all, I define government in terms of as a group of people exercising coercive power over a certain geographical area, let's say. Mm-hmm. Right. And now it seems on the face of it that coercion, which is like shaping someone's choice through threats of violence or actual violence or various kinds of constraints or threats of imprisonment or, you know, also maybe like even fines and things like that, if they can be enforced, trying to change people's choices that way or affect them. One thinks that that needs to be morally justified in every case. So if I'm coercing you or if I like if we're on the street and I'm coercing you or I'm coercing people in my family or I'm coercing people in my region or something like that, that seems like crime, essentially. And it requires some kind of moral justification, which is not to say that it can't ever be justified. There might be cases where coercion can be morally justified. And you could probably think of something, you know what I mean? But in every case where coercion runs between two people or two groups or whatever, it requires a moral justification. So since state power rests on coercion or employs coercion pervasively, it must be morally justified. So, okay, social contract theory justifies it by the alleged fact that people have agreed to have this coercive power operated over them. So, you know, Hobbes pictures human beings living in a state of nature, which is, you know, that just means a situation with no government. I mean, he kind of portrays this as an actual historical event or series of events. And, you know, famously, uh, life in the state of nature, according to Hobbes, is nasty, brutish and short because he pictures people as fundamentally self-interested. And if that's unchecked by coercive authority, we'll just rob and murder each other 
every chance we get, basically, and everyone will be in danger all the time. And we can't we won't be able to engage in any cooperative activities. <clears throat> so he starts out with this really dark vision of what human beings are. But then he says, you know, like we sort of have a convention and we go like, well, this is really sucking. Like this is really not going well. We're spending all our energy fighting each other, robbing each other, guarding our stuff from the others. If we instituted an authority that could enforce a certain set of rules on us, then we could reduce the costs of this terrifying state of nature that we're in. And so every rational agent would choose to enter into a contract like that and voluntarily submit themselves to a coercive authority because the costs of the state of nature are so astronomical. So, I mean, it, it basically just rests on the idea that, you know, you can be coerced legitimately if you agree to it, or it, maybe it rests the legitimacy of state power on the moral principle that one should keep one's promises, and one has promised to obey the state. Okay. Now, it doesn't actually seem that one has promised to obey the state, <laughs> basically, or in many cases, it doesn't seem that way. Right. I don't believe that I've promised to obey the American government. In fact, I've explicitly insisted that I have not promised to obey it. And yet on especially John Locke's version of social contract theory, I have promised anyway. I've committed myself anyway, implicitly or tacitly by accepting like the benefits of uh, living within this government controlled framework or whatever, like using the roads, eating inspected meat or whatever it might be, you know. So this the first move in social contract theory is to say, like, you could be legitimately coerced if you agree to be. That's an interesting question, whether that makes sense exactly or not. And then the second move is like, and guess what? You can't help but agree. Everyone has agreed. Thus, you know, the laws can be legitimately enforced on you. You can be legitimately taxed, et cetera. You know, mm -hmm. that's social contract theory. So why, why does not that hold up? You know, if, if you don't like it, leave it. Why isn't that good enough? <laughs> that actually is a representation of social contract theory, right? Because like Locke argues that just continued residence is agreement. And so like it's, yeah, love it or leave it, basically. Or like if you don't like it, go back to Somalia or whatever the hell. So maybe the Trump is a social contract theorist. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say about that is just that I have not agreed. And there is no, in this picture, there's no possibility of my withdrawing except by like heroic means. Sure. So I'd have to tear up my life entirely and move. Okay. And that is what Locke basically says. Yeah. It's hardly, um, it's hardly voluntary in any robust sense. Yes. Any meaningful right. way it fails. Yes, exactly. So like when the costs are astronomical, then the decision is coerced. Mm -hmm. And if the decision is coerced, it can't undergird a valid contract. You see? Right. So like if you coerce me into accepting a car from your lot or something like that, if you force me to take it or somehow, you can't also charge me for it on the grounds that I've agreed. So I don't think most people have voluntarily agreed to be governed by whatever state they may be in. But more strongly, and I, I think this is somewhat of an original argument, I guess, I think the overwhelming power of the state, most states, relative to any individual in their population, makes it impossible to voluntarily agree. Even if I enthusiastically express my agreement, 
the voluntariness of that is partly a matter of the context in which I declare that. And if that context is so hedged about by force, then there is no possibility of actually voluntarily agreeing. So like if you're if you're called upon to voluntarily agree to be governed by a state that has, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers in uniform who are heavily armed uh, and wearing, you know, body armor, who have like artillery and nuclear weapons and things like this. I don't think you could tell whether anybody's agreement was sincere. And even if it was. That wouldn't underpin a valid contract because the context is so entirely coercive. Resistance is useless, basically. Yeah, so I really think that's it's kind of a pathetic argument. Like it's it's an embarrassingly bad argument, even though like plenty of people have endorsed versions of it or elaborated on it or tried to deal with the objections, I guess. Yeah. I've heard it said before that theocracy makes more sense because at least they claimed authority from God instead of out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, and if, and if God was endorsing your government, I guess that would be a pretty good sign of legitimacy. I might I might get worried about the legitimacy of God at that point. Yeah. I mean, at that point, we'd have to abolish God. Yeah. Well, a lot of anarchists have been in that vein, too, right? Like Bakunin, let's say. Mm-hmm. Like if God existed, it'd be necessary to abolish him. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's social contract theory. How about utilitarian justifications for the state? One of the very classic treatments of that is David Hume in his essay of the original contract. And he's actually attacking Locke's contract theory, possibly Rousseau's too. I'm trying to remember all the dates, like Hume actually knew Rousseau. And basically what he says is, like Hobbes argues that the state of nature sucks, that we're all at war with one another. We can't even get any technology going we can't like develop all the things that human beings can develop through cooperative activities in a state of nature without a government. In Hobbes and Locke, that's why we come together and agree to be governed by some, one of us or some of us. For Hume, I mean, Hume just goes like, well, let's skip this agreement thing, which never happened. Like Hume is really sharp on that. He's like, there is no such agreement. There never was. That's just a fiction. And furthermore, it's an unnecessary fiction. Because all you need is the fact that it's complete disaster to live in anarchy, okay, in the state of nature. If it is a complete disaster and everyone suffers and no one can be happy, then that's all the argument you need for a coercive authority. Let's just leave it at that. That seems to me, yeah, that to me makes a lot more sense than social contract theory. But why is that wrong? Okay. I mean, it depends on an assessment of the utilitarian effects or the effects on, overall effects on human happiness of government versus no government. Now, I mean, this is in a way, this is a problem with utilitarianism in general. That would be incredibly difficult to assess, okay? And like, there's a lot of work on this both ways around. So for example, some of the, I've just done a review of James C. Scott's most recent book. Excellent. James which, C. Scott. Yeah, which yeah. one? Uh, it's called Against the Grain. Cool. And it's about the dawn of civilization, like mm-hmm. in Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's worked his whole life, James C. Scott, who I think is one of the most important theorists working now. He's worked his whole life to show that life without government has been very common among human beings, has been consciously chosen by many cultures, and that it's not so bad or that it's probably better overall than life with government. OK, 
Okay, like so much empirical data is potentially relevant to that. Like that's such an obscure question. And of course, it's such a general question. I mean, there could be situations without governments that are totally, totally utilitarian disasters. And there definitely have been situations with governments that are total utilitarian disasters. So, I mean, the, the basic argument I would make against this is like, you're going to have to show the positive utilitarian effects of government in general in the face of some very hard data. So, for example, all of the genocides of the 20th century were performed by governments, right? All of the worst wars that human beings have ever prosecuted against one another, like the world wars in the 20th century, again, for example, were created by governments, impossible without governments. So like if, and, and I do this in Against the State, if you start adding up like just the death tolls inflicted by governments, often against their own people in the 20th century, you know, you're, it's tens of millions of people, okay? And if you're going to stare squarely at that and tell me that obviously governments have positive utilitarian effects, I'm going to just go like, well, it sure doesn't eyeball that way to me. Now, I see why people want to believe it, and I see why people, why it's plausible in certain cases, okay? So, for example, you know, Social Security or something like that, right? I think probably Social Security has excellent utilitarian effects overall. Now, maybe it rests on coercive taxation, blah, blah, blah. Maybe there are other good objections to it. But something like that or certain welfare programs, I mean, this would be uh, debatable, I think, actually. But, you know, many government actions and laws do probably have positive overall utilitarian effects. But the wars, the genocides... Mm -hmm. It was governments who designed and made nuclear weapons. They're probably the only human force capable of developing a nuclear arsenal or motivated to do things like that. And then, you know, it's possible that that's just the end of life on Earth, right? And now, so if you're just staring at this empty planet, this rock spinning through space after the nuclear exchange, and you're going like, well... Yeah, that was government or whatever. But I mean, it, you know, no government would be even worse. Then I'm just completely puzzled. So I, I just say, like, at best, there's a lot, lot of work to be done to show that government does overall have positive effects. Right. Yeah. And the proof always rests in the people's hands who are actually trying to dominate. True. Yeah. What yeah. about uh, justicial justifications? Yeah, I, I, I use this term justicial Justicial, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah justicial. Either way, I don't, I'm not sure. Which it, it is a word that shows up in the Oxford English Dictionary, surprisingly. Uh, <laughs> because I thought there was a set of arguments in favor of the political state that didn't fit comfortably into the other categories. So, I mean, the basic idea of a justicial justification for state power is that some sort of overall authority is necessary to creating any kind of just society. So, for example, I mean, just like in a more common sense way, you could say that without some group of people or body that's capable of redistributing resources, you're going to get more and more like unbelievable inequality and stuff like this. Like you'll end up with an incredibly unjust society in an anarchist society. Uh -huh. Like inequality would grow, you know, exponentially or whatever, even worse than it is now or <laughs> that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And so I, I think like Plato's justifications in the Republic, I mean, he doesn't really like try to justify state power from the ground up. But I think this is really Rawls's position in, you know, more recent political philosophy is that you can't have a just society without a power capable of making overall decisions about how resources are going to be uh, allocated and stuff like that. So it's some sort of overall structure of coercive authority is essential to the possibility of justice, I think, is the position. Sure. The common concern of sociological inequality and all that often separates the political and the economic, whereas in reality, they're connected in a lot of important ways that often gets overlooked. Yeah, quite true. Yeah. I mean, I have a whole battery of arguments along those lines, too, actually. Well, I mean, I guess you can try to make make it obscure whether these things really apply. But yeah, it seems to me that overall, at least it's quite questionable that overall societies with governments have been more just than those without. I mean, it seems to me that inequality, even in like sort of a quasi-democratic society like the U.S. or whatever, is exacerbated by government activity in about a billion ways, Okay. Like, I mean, really, the political authority basically operates on behalf of the top people economically. And, you know, I mean, that's a complex picture. But I think that the political authority at the or the political hierarchy and the economic hierarchy mirror one another and exacerbate one another. So I, I think it's unlikely that societies with governments would be more egalitarian, for example, overall than uh, societies without. Although these are, like I say, these are such obscure general questions, you mm-hmm. know, too. Okay, so we, we've established that the state ultimately rests on basically deadly force to maintain its existence. But it seems so. to me that it also largely relies on what Etienne de la Poitie calls voluntary servitude. So, for example, no one necessarily is forced to become a cop or a part of the military, but we see folks do that voluntarily all the time. So what do you make of this other aspect of state domination that is largely backed by what seems to be voluntary cultural support? Yeah, that's quite true. Uh, I mean, when I'm really being dark about humanity, that I think about humans is that we often are looking for someone to tell us what to do. A lot of people in a lot of situations, and I understand this to some extent, would just find their own freedom or their own autonomy an intolerable burden. And I do think that probably you couldn't account for the pervasiveness of the political state and the history of the political state without acknowledging that it's something that in some sense people want, right? Now, where those desires come from, I mean, they're partly created by the state, right, or by state education or that sort of thing. Yeah, it's learned. Um, yeah. It, it does kind of like bring you back a little bit to social, the social contract in the sense that I think probably a lot of people would voluntarily, even if it's not possible for them to voluntarily uh, enter into a social contract with an existing state. They probably would if they could, you know, maybe even most people. And then the question is, how could we change that a little bit? I mean, I mean, the other thing I'll say, though, is that there are also people, maybe somewhat fewer, who react in exactly the opposite way. That is like that to whom any form of authority creates kind of a bristling hostility or, you know, or violent rebellion. 
Okay. So, I mean, like there's different kinds of people and some of us are quite enthusiastic or yearning to be subordinated. And some of us are yearning to subordinate. And some of us just kind of react with almost, you know, with incredibly visceral uh, hostility toward any form of authority. Uh, But yeah, I do. I do agree with Leboite and others, you know, that I don't think it could continue like this unless people did. Many people did kind of yearn to be subordinated in some way. Yeah. And I guess all that means is at the end of the day, since the majority of us don't wield political power, you know, we have to recognize where we are and the fact that really all we have control over probably is sort of the cultural side of things. And I think this is where sort of hearts and minds come into play. Okay. Yeah. You know, so that's the reason (laughs) that's the reason I tell myself things like this podcast are important. You know, the the conversations that we have with one another and the way we treat each other every day contribute towards a liberatory culture. And like, I don't I'm not sure if law precedes culture or culture precedes law. It's probably the latter more than the former, but they interplay in like a chaotic game of ping pong. And yes, I think since all we have control over is primarily is over culture, then we probably ought to continue these conversations and spread awareness of the the uh, illegitimacy of the state and that another world is possible, you know? Right on. You know, I think like someone like Thoreau, I think that's what he thought he was doing, like kind of pricking the conscience of people. Like he didn't think he was going to overthrow the U.S. government or stop the war with Mexico even. But what he thought was he was going to like show people that they are capitulating and how bad the results are and maybe like spur them to a kind of pride in autonomy, individual or collective, or Mm -hmm. like just secession from the unjust system and so on, you know? Yeah. I mean, so I agree. Like, I mean, in a way that's, it's too bad. Right. And, And when I was much younger, I, I dreamed or expected a revolution to change this whole thing, maybe violently or necessarily violently or something like that. Yeah. I guess I don't think about it like that anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I guess I stopped expecting that and maybe stopped affirming it. So I I kind of agree with you. Like, we kind of got to, it's about communicating with each other more than, at least maybe at this point, like marching on the Capitol with uh, rifles or something, you know? Yeah, I feel that. No, yeah. Like, I think one pitfall of like sort of a revolutionary way of looking at things is it's, it's waiting to happen always and it's never actualizing. I mean, you could argue that like dramatic change into a free society is revolutionary in and of itself. But I think what we're talking about is specifically like formal violent revolution or something like that. And one of the pitfalls of that kind of thinking, in my opinion, additionally, is that like you can sort of enter this sort of toxic paternalism that says like, you know, I hope the the worst presidential candidate gets elected (laughs) so we can whip these people into shape and we can finally take up arms. So that kind of, you know, has bad results also. Yes, I don't think that's that's a good approach because you might just end up with like a bunch of oppression and, and you know, not much response or not a good response or and people are going to suffer. Sure. You know, if you're rooting for Trump, you know, to keep winning so that we can have a revolution. I mean, I don't know. Like, you're kind <laughs> of fantasizing, right? Like, you know, like, that sounds OK. Well, and plus late in my life, I guess I've become a pacifist hmm. uh, and, a, and a Quaker. So I guess I have a different view on the possibility and the legitimacy of violent revolution. But I also still feel like, okay, 
because the other side of this is if we don't do that or, you know, or don't, you know, recommend that, aren't we basically just passively capitulating? I mean, is change possible? Right. Aren't we all effectively pacifists to that extent? Yeah. But, but, anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, there's there's all kinds of alternatives as far as change goes. There's counter-economics, there's building alternatives, there's insurrection. There's all kinds of different things that we can do not to just survive, but help chip away at this monster. Right. And different things might be appropriate in different moments, different places. Right. You know, like if you're you're dealing with police violence in Baltimore or something like that, you might need an insurrection. Right. Or that might be like a pretty that might even be effective in certain ways. Right. Or or just necessary. But then if you're if a question is like the injustice of the tax code or something like this, you know, like Mm -hmm. insurrection doesn't seem to be the right (laughs) maybe or, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. you. And building alternative. I I really agree with this, like building alternative institutions or alternative, you know, ways of being or just spaces that are outside of the overall structure of coercive authority to whatever extent that's possible. Right. And, And it is possible and it's happening all the time. But so I guess that's sort of what I'd recommend as a transformational procedure. But I don't know how much hope I really have there either, I guess. But yeah, no, I feel you. I feel you. I kind of put this sentence together after watching a few of your uh, YouTube videos. But what are your thoughts on this statement? Anarchism is to political philosophy as skepticism is to epistemology. (laughs) Yeah. Within political philosophy, it's essential. It has been essential in the history of Western political philosophy for sure. So I'm thinking like, for example, Descartes, you know, method of doubt. So how do we know anything? How do we know whether we know anything? Well, let's try to doubt everything that we believe so we don't admit any untested assumptions or whatever. Let's let's destroy all, you know, tear down the foundations and build anew so we can be assured that our beliefs are justified, you know, or as close to true as we can get them. So that's the function of skepticism within epistemology is to test knowledge and theories of knowledge, to press on them. And I think this is and I really think it's function. Anarchism has functioned just that way in political philosophy. So it's really kind of funny that so much Western political philosophy is concerned with the justification of state power. So, you know, you're Hobbes or Locke in the 17th century. And I mean, a lot of people, I think, believe that there were no anarchists in the 17th century. Okay, Mm -hmm. I mean, so like if you're looking at histories of anarchism, they might start with uh, William Godwin or Proudhon or something like that. Right. So well after that. So if there are no anarchists in the 17th century, what are Hobbes and Locke doing, devoting their whole careers or a big chunk of their careers to justifying state power? In the face of apparently anarchist objections. Mm -hmm. First thing I want to say is there were anarchists in the the 17th century, probably more than we know, even Mm -hmm. because we tend to get repressed uh, often. But there were definitely religious anarchists in the 17th century. So I think you can't understand Western political theory at all without thinking about anarchism at its foundation in some way, like the foundational questions only come from anarchists, right? Like, why is that okay for you to arrest people or for you to fine people or for you to take people's stuff or whatever, right? 
So if no one is pressing those objections, then Western political theory is actually kind of incomprehensible. So I think like even for Hobbes, even if he thinks it's just obvious that the anarchist alternative is so much worse, yet he's spending you know a good decade trying to grapple with it and, to, and, and implicitly taking it very seriously indeed. And so I think like skepticism in epistemology and anarchism in political theory run very in parallel. They're the objections that are needed to develop a theory of knowledge or a political theory, I guess, within, just within the Western tradition. How would you sum up the type of individualist anarchism that you endorse to someone who is unfamiliar with it? Yeah, you know, I've wrestled with this. Sometimes I'm a little uncomfortable being called an individualist. Sometimes I'm not. Okay, so I guess I would associate my political philosophy, like if if you really want to know what I think, you could maybe just read Civil Disobedience by Thoreau. And the kind of individualism that I endorse is the kind of individualism you get from people like Emerson and Thoreau. I mean, the reason I'm uncomfortable with it in some ways with the term is that you would so much associate it with capitalism or like Ayn Rand. Right, right. And it sounds like you're in favor of self-seeking or, you know, the invisible hand or something like this. And, you know, it sort of gives you this picture of maybe each person in competition with all the other people, each person just trying to get theirs, you know, or maximize their resources or something like that and their security. And so I don't want to be associated with that kind of position. I don't want to be an Ayn Rand libertarian or I'm sort of a libertarian, but maybe not in that vein. Sure, Um, sure. Or hyper-capitalist. Right. Yeah. Thoreau and Emerson are, well, they're abolitionists. Uh, I'd say basically they're feminists. <laughs> that, that takes some work. And they're basically not enthusiasts for capitalism, as they saw it arising in their own era. Uh, not at all. But they are individualists, radical individualists. So the first thing I mean by this, I guess, is that collectivist orientations, especially when they get to the point of kind of saying that individuals are not fully real or they're not the basic moral agents, that it's groups, not individuals who count or who are real or who are the basic agents of moral and political action. I, when I hear that, I hear coming right after that. And so we're going to have to sacrifice some of you for the sake of the rest. You see, like if you if you delete the reality of the individual, the importance, the moral significance of the individual, then I think you're basically saying we can use you for our purposes. Okay, like it's very nice to go like, well, the collective good versus the individual interest or something like that. All right. But the collective good, quote unquote, is going to be someone's idea or some group's idea of what is the collective good. And it's going to maybe redound to their own benefit. I, I just feel and I think that if you look at collectivist societies, like explicitly collectivist Marxist systems in the, in the 20th century and, and now even too, that's just straight up. OK, we're going to have to sacrifice a million people to make this beautiful future. But guess what? Each of those million people is not even a real thing. You know, what I mean, the collective is real and the individual is unreal. Mm-hmm. And so I just think you're unleashing a nightmare when you mm-hmm. de-real individuals, okay? And then the other thing I want to say that's key to my kind of individualism, I guess, is just that it's always possible to dissent from a consensus of the people around you. And it's absolutely necessary for that to be possible in order for us to make any kind of progress or have a decent society. 
Otherwise, you know, you're liable to flow unanimously, apparently unanimously, into a complete disaster. You need dissenters, and so you need to respect dissent. And that can come from a group in some sense. It can come from individuals, right? And that's really what Thoreau is all about, right? Like, that's where he's at. Like, don't tell me what I have to believe, okay? Mm-hmm. And dissent has been incredibly important, even in, like, basic human political progress or whatever. Uh, so just preserving the value of individual dissent. And so things like free speech as an individual right, I just think that that's key to any decent, like, human life together or something. So where do you stand economically then? You mentioned that you're not <clears throat> sort of this crude pro-capitalist Ayn Rand type. Right. I hope not. Maybe you follow along more the line of like a free market anti-capitalist position of Tucker or Spooner. Are you into mutualism? Where do you stand on all that? Yeah, yeah. These are hard questions, I got to say. And, and in some ways, like designing ideal economic systems, I don't know how effective that is, although it's worth taking, making some moves. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I would identify as a mutualist, I suppose. I don't usually use that term. I'm willing to affirm that very much. I mean, I've worked a lot on Josiah Warren, speaking of people like Spooner and Tucker. Josiah Warren is often known as the first uh, American anarchist. So first of all, I don't reject private property entirely. You know, So that's the difference between, I mean, that's usually the first thing that people say about communist versus individualist anarchism. And probably mutualists, most of them do not reject private property entirely. Right. It kind of, yeah, like it kind of depends on what you mean by private property yes. too, right? I yes. mean, if we're call, exactly. Are we talking just like a hypothetical individual ownership or are you talking about some sort of quasi-state individual ownership, you know? Right, exactly. So like, I do think it's important that I like own my house. I feel like it's important that I own like the immediate objects of my environment. I, I kind of like feel like that's essential to my relation to some of these objects and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I feel ownership, I guess, of some, you know, pretty limited little environment and stuff like that. But um, in terms of like individual possessions and maybe spaces, I can see forms of private ownership being like quite valid. I mean, I feel I feel that. But yeah, and then Proudhon is kind of along these lines. William Green, the American mutualist and others. It's another matter, ownership of means of production or ownership of capital or ownership of like Jared Kushner owns 9,000 units of rental apartments in the Baltimore area, let's say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't really know how to prevent that from happening exactly, although I do really think that you need state apparatus to sustain that kind of uh, ownership. But that's the kind of thing that gives me the heebie-jeebies. But it doesn't give me the heebie-jeebies that I own my blender. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Uh, I don't feel required to turn it over to you for your daiquiris or something like this, although I'd be happy to share <laughs> So Josiah Warren had all these, made all these very practical attempts to create a kind of labor economy, a labor exchange economy. You can, y'all can look this up or whatever, but time stores in which people bought goods using labor notes, that is pledges to work and kind of moving out from there into a very complex labor exchange situation. Uh, he managed to found several towns and construct the houses and all this and have pretty successful communities, basically with no uh, no state money or whatever, but through procedures of labor exchange. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think the stuff you get in mutual banking by William Green and kind of Proudhon's concepts along those lines and stuff like that, very promising. And, and some of them have been tried. I mean, something like a credit union mm-hmm. is not even that far from that, I think. And, you know, there are many forms of labor exchange, informal and formal, that are pretty central to the economy anyway and stuff. So, yeah, I like the mutual uh, move, basically. Cool. All right. So a lot of people associate individualist anarchists with Stirner and his amoral egoism. What are your thoughts on his whole approach to this thing? Stirner is, I mean, I, I definitely don't count myself an egoist, man. And I really do see that as kind of monstrous. And, and you know, if you're reading Stirner, he keeps kind of saying or hinting that only his own consciousness is real or something like that, or real to him. Uh, and that's true for each of us, maybe. I, I don't believe that. I don't want to believe it. Now, Stirner is a, is a much better, more interesting intellectual figure than people sometimes think. And every time I return to him, I think like, wow, there's about, you know, 30,000 interesting ideas here. And plus, he sounds like Friedrich Nietzsche. He's, he's quite a bit before Friedrich Nietzsche. I've heard uh, Nietzsche was influenced by him. Yeah, and maybe not, not acknowledged either. Definitely not sufficiently acknowledged. The, even the whole tone. And I do like his kind of, I love the iconoclast. Like he just rips and tears at so many things that people, you know, all believe without thinking about it. Or like he presses on all these assumptions, all these moments in history. So I think like he's quite brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, Karl Marx was obsessed by him, wrote a whole gigantic book trying to refute him. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. But I do I don't like I would contrast that kind of egoism to like an Emersonian style individualism. They overlap in a lot of ways, really. But self-seeking is something that I I don't want to be merely a self-seeker. And I don't think I am. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we are. I mean, I don't know if, if Sterner really, um, if, if Sterner is a psychological egoist in that sense, I guess he is more or less. Like we're always seeking our own gain, although he has, it's not just economic for Sterner. It's all this kind of ego stuff and all, and self-image sure. and things. I, I guess I don't want to believe that about myself and I don't believe it about myself. And I do want to open up the possibilities, keep open the possibilities and expand the possibilities of cooperative action. Yeah, I hear you. I think there is that in Sterner, but I also understand your hesitancy with embracing him fully. And to be honest, I feel like we could dedicate like an entire three hours on the topic if we wanted to. <laughs> what was that? I, I I probably need to go back and reread before I do the three hours. Well, it's it, yeah, he's not an easy one. There's just so much to say about it and so many different yes. directions you can take it. But Yeah, it's easy to caricature him. Sure. And it's hard to avoid caricaturing him real quick, like in in thirty second response or whatever. Of course, because it's pretty it's pretty rich philosophy actually, but it does have a certain kind of monstrousness I think to it. I also want to say that I think groups are real. You know, I think we're social creatures, and I think collective decision making is possible and things like that. Okay, but probably Sterner does too. Yeah, uh, the union of anyway, egoists. But, the... Uh, the union of egoists, I guess, is where he ends up. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on a little bit. You mentioned it earlier. Speaking of the Reds, I understand that your parents were Marxists. I was wondering in in what way did that inform your political views and how did you get into radical politics in general? Yeah. Okay. My mother's parents were just straight up Communist Party members uh, in, in the 20s and 30s. She was raised, you know, going to communist meetings and things like that. 
And, you know, she came out of that far left, although, you know, not straight communist uh, or something like that in the 60s when I was a little kid. Now, my father was actually a Republican, more or less, I think. But my mother divorced him and remarried someone who was a high school history teacher, actually a Quaker as well, Hmm. but was a Marxist, counted himself as a Marxist. And they both did, especially in terms of describing the history of the world, like doing history. Mm hmm. They both took like a Marxist approach to that. And, you know, they both basically accepted this idea that the history of the world is history of class struggle. I remember in the late 60s and early 70s, both of my parents were real enthusiasts for Mao. Right. You know, they they just thought that what was happening in China was just this harbinger of a redeemed world. Kind oh, of no. Thing. Right in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. I mean, there's there's limits to what we understood about that, I guess, at the time. I mean, just like my mother's parents really were pro-Stalin till the end, you know what I mean? So I did come up with that. And OK, so I was I was like a really reading little kid from pretty early, you know, and I counted myself a Marxist for a few months. I read the Communist Manifesto. I read a bunch of Marx and uh, a bunch of other Marxist theorists when I was 12. And I don't know what, what exactly the process was, but it struck me at a certain point that my most basic intuitions were just straight up anti-authoritarian. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I was fighting with the teachers and administrators in my school like mad on this. Yeah. Uh, or just like resisting their authority and my parents' authority. Okay, so the Marxism came from my parents. I had I reached a moment of rejecting their authority. And I reached a moment of reading Marx and going like, guess what? This is a totalitarian political philosophy. And like, okay, so I, I don't want this. And so then I don't know how I got Emma Goldman's anarchism in my hand at that moment, but it came to me. Nice. And, um, yeah, it might even been sitting around my parents' house, actually. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I was just like I was blown. And, and Berkman's ABC of anarchism, I guess. Mm -hmm. Those were the first things I read. And I just knew immediately like, OK, this like it just clicked with all my intuitions immediately. OK. And then so I ended up fighting with my I'm still fighting with my mom, who's kind of <laughs> mutated. She's more like an Obama liberal now. OK. Yeah. Uh, but we're still fighting about the same issues we we're fighting about in 72, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, it was partly just a rebellion against my parents. I didn't want to like I could have rebelled by becoming like a Goldwater Republican. Yeah, my God. I yeah. didn't really go that direction. I, I respect a lot about their revolutionary politics. And, you know, this is 71, 72. Growing up in D.C., I'm in the middle of the civil rights movement. My parents are going to all these marches. I'm going to all these marches. The peace movement is happening. I'm just not going to float to the right at that moment. But I'm trying to get out of the authoritarianism that I see on the left at that moment as well. Sure. You know, I've, I've had this thought. If we raise good anarchist kids, then what do they have to rebel against? Like, yeah. worst case scenario, they, they end up like well-adjusted, apolitical <laughs> people. You know? That's, yeah. So, like, maybe we should all be Marxists to give them something to rail against. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> one of my stepsons is an investment banker. So that <laughs> now the other one is like a rock and roller. Uh -huh. So, you know, I'm not sure what I had to do with either of those things. But, yeah, maybe <laughs> some rebel and some don't. Right. Right. So you mentioned Thoreau and Emerson and a few others. Besides them, were there any other political thinkers or philosophers that were particularly influential in the uh, development of your political understanding? 
Well, yeah, like I say, Emma Goldman, you know, hit me like a thunderclap when I was a kid. So she's been influential on me throughout. Um, I've done a lot of work on Josiah Warren, as I say, and I feel very influenced by him. Another American individualist anarchist, although she, she's complex on this, is Volterine Declare. Some of the anarchists are undeservedly obscure, I think. I mean, when I was quite young, I mean, the real influences were people like Abby Hoffman. You know, I was really into the yippies and things like that. So like some of the 60s, 70s stuff as well. Malcolm X was a huge influence on me, although maybe not to make me an anarchist exactly, but it was like anarchy, state, and utopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think who contemporary. I love David Graeber and James C. Scott. Those two have been mentioned on just about every episode of this podcast so far. <laughs> yeah, I really think those are the important political theorists working now. And I think like the last really great innovator in anarchist political theory was Peter Kropotkin, all right, around, you know, 1900 or whatever. But I think Graeber and Scott have made the first like really profound contributions to anarchist political theory since then. There, there are interesting moments, like the green anarchism of Bookshin and things like that. Like there, It's not that there weren't developments, but I feel like they've kind of brought the next phase of anarchist political theory, which is necessary. Sure, sure. Have your anti-authoritarian convictions ever been a problem in your career as a professor? Nonstop. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. In and, what ways? Uh, well, I mean, I wonder about myself. And I have thought about this and I've worked on it in therapy and stuff like this about whether my sort of anti-authoritarian thing is basically a pathology. (laughs) Okay, And, you know, I mean, it does have these origins in my relations with my parents and things like that. But if it's a pathology and and if I can have it without it destroying me, I like it as a pathology. Like I'd rather be, you know, like we were talking about Boate and all that. I'd rather have the pathology that resists authority than the pathology that yearns toward it. Sure. Yeah, I think I think the DSM is calling it oppositional defiance disorder nowadays. Yes. yes. <laughs> oppositional defiance disorder. Yes. It, they 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 worked out a diagnosis for it. And, and I think I the, the technical the technical definition is those who doubt social contract theory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or just reject the social contract or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, and I'm sure I would have been diagnosed that way in middle school if I, they had had that diagnosis when I was in middle school. And maybe they would have medicated me, cured me. But uh, <laughs> I've never really had a mentor in academia. I had uh, it, It's been a fight all the way through, I guess you'd say. So, you know, like I started rejecting my professor's positions immediately. My dissertation supervisor was Richard Rorty, uh, you know, quite a famous philosopher. And I dedicated my whole graduate career to refuting his philosophy. That's brave. I don't know if it was brave or not. Like, I couldn't. It was really pretty stupid. Like, it, I, it took me a long time to get through. And I didn't end up with a really screechingly excellent letter of recommendation from Rorty, I don't think. And I probably could have learned more if I wasn't so busy all the time going like, okay, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? How can I destroy that one? And also, I should say, it wasn't just a matter of fighting against whoever was there. (laughs) I do reject Rorty's philosophy, like, on other grounds, I think, than the pathological. But... Yeah, it's been a, it's been a problem and I've had a very like fraught relationship with each of the institutions that I've been embedded in. 
I've had a career where I floated around a lot. And even my situation now, I, I would say like the institution is not really that thrilled that I'm here. And I'm not maybe that thrilled with them either. Mm. I would think that a little less of that could have led to a much more successful academic career. But of course, who knows? But well, yeah, it's the uh, the burden of the radical, I guess. I guess the burden of the radical that fits outside of the accepted radicalness of academia. (laughs) Yeah, true. That's true, too. And sometimes I regret it all. Sometimes I just sit there wishing like I could have had a smoother road with this stuff. But other times I just get triple defiant, right? Like, screw you, man. I don't care. You don't have to give me tenure. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, as rebellions go, it's pretty trivial, right? And actually, I do have a job. Sure. Right. And a car and, uh, you know, and health insurance. And so the degree of my amazing rebellion has been I, I was always compromising, too. And I and I have gotten through somehow. So, you know, I, I shouldn't exaggerate, you know, how cool ass reb- rebellious I've been. <laughs> I mean, all of this has a personal thing going. But I also don't think that overall academia is a meritocracy. I think it rewards conventionality above all. For one thing, that's why you end up with like this unanimous professoriate and this kind of real smugness that you get in academia. Yeah, yeah. I need to like make a structure in my head of what's wrong with academia or something, but I'm not very impressed with the philosophy that's emerging from academia right now. Yeah, when I was like, say I was in grad school in the 80s, you had these figures that were really very distinctive. And very interesting and very unconventional. I, I would include Rorty in that, or people like maybe Arthur Danto, who was kind of also a bit of a mentor and friend of mine, or say Alistair McIntyre, or, or not to mention you know Foucault and Derrida and this kind of thing. And I think that if you had people that showed that much creativity, flair, and unconventionality now, they couldn't make it through grad school, man. They would just get extruded. Like, and there really are very few figures working on that kind of level now uh, or with that kind of originality or boldness or distinctiveness of voice and things like this. It's not that there's nobody, but we're producing very conventional, predictable intellectual products, it seems to me, both the people and the texts that are emerging. I don't know how to explain that either. Like a continual drift towards conformity and ideological conformity. I think part of it is economic pressure. Hmm. Like, in other words, people are really just worried about how do I not die in this career? And so that I think that puts a lot of pressure for conventionality, agreement, kind of nodding along, unanimity. You don't want to make the fatal mistake, which is so easy, man. Like the wrong sentence coming out of your mouth at a conference, mm-hmm. the wrong title of your next paper, the wrong disagreement with that senior professor or something like that. That can end you now. You know what I mean? Or at least people are experiencing it like that. They think like they're very anxious about their own survival. And I think that's part of what makes the product more conventional or whatever. Yeah. So I guess, uh, do you think other young people considering academia, specifically anarchists considering academia, do you think they should continue down that path in that case? Oh, man. You know, I have different moods about this on different days. And I used to affirm no matter what. 
I'm not sure I would advise people to go. I mean, I, I guess it depends on the person. I've had a couple of students like this over the last few years, I guess, like just someone who's just so obviously a philosophy professor. You know what I mean? Like just <laughs> like, you know, the first paper they hand you is like, OK, pro if anyone should do this, you should, you know. But even there, you got you got to have like a pretty bad conscience if you're straight up like pushing someone into grad school in philosophy, because you might end up it might end up taking seven years with no job at the end of it and a massive debt. Yeah. You know, so I don't know, man. It's a hard call. Yeah. Well, if, it can if, be a great career in the sense that I have summers off. I've been able to really kind of think about basically what I wanted to think about all these years. And it's more autonomous than most careers if you have a decent job or whatever, you know? Like there's not someone right over my shoulder telling me how to teach or something. There's a lot to like about it, but there's more and more I feel overwhelmed by the problems of it too, though. Right, right. If not academia, what do you think anarchists should be doing in order to help bring about a free society? <laughs> well, it depends on the anarchist, right? But, yeah, we mentioned some things already, but I mean, is there anything in particular? And I, I know that you're generally not so optimistic about these things, but if there is hope, what, what what can we do beyond educational outreach and some of the stuff we've mentioned so far? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, a lot of things we just do every day can take up a place in that. You know, like I, like I belong to a CSA, right, the Community Supported Agriculture, or just the everyday things where you're kind of looking for autonomous ways to interact and things like this or ways to get stuff. I mean, I live very rural and I don't know any anarchists, <laughs> you know, around me and stuff like that. But, you know, anarchists, I don't, I don't mind anarchist cells and organizations or whatever they want to do. My Quakers are pretty anarchisty, actually. Well, some are, some are. You know, and I thought there would be, and I expect there to be, a greater and greater protest movement in the face of Trump and all this shit. And I think anarchists have a place in that, you know, and, and should be in that and fighting for feminism and fighting for anti-racism and all that. However people do that, who you know, whatever their views or whatever their underlying theory or whatever. I think that one problem with the question I asked you is it sort of, I think it limits anarchism as a, as a political philosophy in some ways, because it assumes that we should only be doing things that bring about this spook of the perfect utopia in the end society. Yeah. And yeah. really, there's yeah. things that we can do interpersonally every day. Like it's it's not yes. just a means to an end, but it's like an, an end in of itself. And yes. that's you know, this is something Hopefully. we do, creating freedom wherever, interpersonally, whatever. Yes. Just like, treating yeah. each other with respect for each other's autonomy. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And, you know, the utopia, this is an interesting matter to discuss. I know we're <laughs> low on time or whatever, but. No, uh, go for it. It's, a, it's very far from here to there. OK, so I've li I'm 61 years old. I tried to get the anarchist utopia going when I was 13 or something like that. You know, you're going to wait your whole life. And like you say, man, like how can your political commitments change how you're living now, even without like a global transformation of all society or something like that? And I do think like anarchism gives you that. Like there's a million ways to be that in your life. Now, if we get the opportunity to create a utopian <laughs> Like, we don't seem to be moving in that direction, do we? You know what I mean? Like, it's not really... I used to think maybe we were, but I, I don't... It doesn't look that way to me now. Who yeah. knows? It'll look different in a few years, too, maybe, but... Sure. I mean, especially technology is just so hard to predict where everything's going. 
Yes, and I used to be kind of really a techno-optimist, right, on an anarchist line. It's like no one is ever going to be able to control this Internet thing. We are free now, man, at least online. They do whatever you want. But the way governments are learning to control and, you know, control people through these things and also control them, control the platforms and stuff is just, yeah. I mean, if you were an anarcho-techno-optimist in the year 2000, which I probably was in some form, information wants to be free and all that stuff, man, it looks a lot, lot darker now. You know, all that kind of goes back to, again, the relationship between the economic and the political right. I mean, because True. Facebook yeah. isn't, isn't just a mom and pop shop that decided to yeah. start a, you know, a social right. media platform. Right. Yes. And it was once a mom and pop shop. You know what I mean? Like, Or like I used to think like, OK, no matter what governments do in this space, no matter what the CIA is doing online, hackers are going to be one step ahead. Now, I don't know, man, if hackers are going to be one step ahead of the Chinese government or whatever, you know, maybe not. So, yeah, I've lost like that, that kind of optimism, I guess. Damn. Well, there you go, folks. Let's give reason to Crispin Sartwell to be optimistic again. We need some more hacktivism. <laughs> we need some more of that shit going on so we can right so we can light some optimism under Crispin Sartwell's ass. <laughs> I'd appreciate it. I hope it's not too late for me, man. <laughs> it's not. Of course it's not. <laughs> All right. So you've mentioned a couple times now that you are a Quaker, right? Yeah. What is the relationship between anarchism and abolitionism to Christianity? Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of work and a lot of thinking about the political moment and group that I most associate myself with is kind of American radicalism of the early 19th century. And I guess the, the figures that I'm thinking about are all abolitionists, radical abolitionists, uh, like William Lloyd Garrison, Nathaniel Peabody Rogers, Lucretia Mott, who's a Quaker. Uh, many of these people were Quakers. One thing is the radical abolitionists of the early 19th century, or many of them, were anti-statists. So William Lloyd Garrison or Lucretia Mott are straight in your face opponents of the existence of the political state in general. In that sense, they are anarchists. And they come to that position out of their abolitionism. So they take as the fundamental moral insight that people can't own people. And then they start to see other relationships besides straight up chattel slavery to one extent or another or in one way or another involving human ownership of other humans. So that is the form of their feminism. So, yeah, Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Lucretia Mott or Lucy Stone, their basic argument for feminism is the abolitionist argument, OK, that marriage is a kind of ownership I mean, as it was constituted in early 19th century America, is an ownership of one person by another. All right, that is just the definition of evil. So how are we going to rethink that? You might think of these as the very most progressive people of that period in the, in the U.S. They're anti-racist, they're feminists, they're anti-capitalists too, you know, even though capitalism is just coming on, like industrial capitalism. And, but they are individualists. So that's why I really kind of love this whole tradition. You know, so there's a radical individualist feminism that's coming from people like Lucretia Mott. But they're also all Christians, really. I mean, this is not true of Emerson and Thoreau, even though they come out of Christianity. 
And, you know, Emerson was a minister, but he mutated. He got all these interests in Eastern philosophy and things like this. You know, so William Lloyd Garrison, though, is coming to his anti-statism and his abolitionism and his feminism straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, beat your swords into plowshares or just the golden rule. Treat other people as you would want to be treated and stuff like that. That's definitely true of Lucretia Mott as well. She's a Quaker eldress, you know, or a Quaker minister, really. And they're bringing it like straight out of the Christianity, even Elizabeth Cady Stanton's feminism, which is interesting, I think. I was an atheist my whole life, and my parents are both atheists, but I found myself yearning at a certain point for something. I guess I've been exploring different spiritual traditions for a long time. And I, I was just reading a whole bunch of Lucretia Mott and stuff like this, and I'm, you know, I started going to Quaker meetings. And uh, yeah, anyway. Quakerism by far seems to me to be the most palatable form of Christianity from my perspective. I guess me too. So here's a, here's a question on the lighter note, maybe one that's a little easier to, to answer. Has Christianity been a net benefit or hindrance on the world? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, uh, you know, my first impulse is to say a net hindrance. <laughs> um, I, I do think these are basically unanswerable questions. You know what I mean? Like just the extent of the phenomena that are relevant to the assessment of a, of a, <laughs> of a question like that are just just too vast. But, um, you know, so I guess, you know, you get the Crusades or the Inquisition or maybe priestly sexual abuse, things like this, you know. You get Martin Luther King, like I say, Lucretia Mott and William Lloyd Garrison, you know, the beautiful Sermon on the Mount, the unbelievable oppressions that have been committed in the name of Christianity, the wars, the deaths, the, the you can't publish that theory Galileo's of Christianity. <laughs> I mean, it's, it probably is too big a, a question. So I, I think Quakerism overall has had a fairly positive effect. I suspect that Catholicism has not. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, on the other hand, if you looked at, you know, liberation theology in Latin America or how many poor people have been fed by the Catholic Church or something. I'm just not sure how to how to tote it up, man. So I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. Let's skip to some actual fun questions now. <laughs> All right. So I read on your Wikipedia that your great grandfather, Herman Bernstein, broke the story about a secret correspondence between some world leaders during yes. World War One and the New York Times. What was that all about? Yeah, yeah. Well, my great-grandfather, my mother's mother's father, Herman Bernstein, is re really a fascinating figure, actually. Like, And I've, I've got his book sitting around. Like, I, I kind of came back to him and helped make the Wikipedia page on him and stuff. Yeah, he was a reporter. I mean, for many papers, the New York Herald, the New York Times, and others. And he was in Russia during the revolution, covering it for American newspapers. I mean, I, I didn't really have the story of this straight for a long time. Uh, it was just more like a family rumor. So the Bolsheviks, I mean, I think this is the story. He doesn't quite tell this in his book on this, but is the Bolsheviks opened up the Tsarist archives. And Herman Bernstein found stuff in there, among other things, an exchange of telegrams between Kaiser Wilhelm and Tsar Nicholas in the run-up to World War I. And it amounted to a secret alliance, basically. Wow. It, 
Yeah. And so they were communicating to each other and they were caught, uh, the book, his book, Herman Bernstein's book on this is called, had an introduction by Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, it was called the Willie Nicky correspondence because that's how they referred to each other as, and I think they were related too. Okay. Like all these Habsburgs or whatever the hell they were. So they were like saying, Hey Willie, what's up? You know, how's the army or whatever? Like, like, so if I marched into X, you know, just hypothetically, how would you respond? You know what I mean? <laughs> this kind of stuff. So it was kind of like sensational story of the century at the moment it was published, I guess, you know, so I was sure. kind of proud of all that. Yeah. Long, long line of radicals in your family then, or at least, at least interesting people to say yeah, the well, least. Herman Bernstein ended up being a conservative actually. Okay. Mm. So he met Herbert Hoover at Versailles as the treaty was written and interviewed him for one of these newspapers. And then he ended up working for Hoover and writing Hoover's official campaign biography in 24 or whatever the hell that was, 28 or something. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And then his daughter became a communist and married a communist. And I don't know much about this, but there just had to be like a family war about this where you oh, know, yeah. dad was Herbert Hoover's buddy and Hoover appointed him ambassador to Albania, too. And, you know, but we're communists bent on destroying Herbert Hoover and all he stands for. So, Oh, my God. So see, that just goes to, to show again that you need to give your kids something to rebel against. Lest yeah. they become conservatives. Yes. Communists. Yes. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> all right. Like they become radicals in the wrong direction by your lights, whatever that is. Yeah. What What's the algorithm that produces anarchists? Yeah. Good question. I always right. thought growing up in D.C. helped. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Surrounded by feds all the time. Yeah. Like your friends, parents, even your friends don't know what they do. <laughs> OK. And, and, and yeah. And it's hard to have like a mystical feeling about the excellence of, you know, the amazingness and, and the meaning of the American government when it's all just, you know, the alcoholic dads in the neighborhood that are running the country. You know what I mean? God damn. Or, uh, yeah. So there, there we go again, wishing like this toxic paternalism on others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So D.C. will make you a skeptic, like just being close to power all day or, you know. For you know. sure. What was it like working as a rock critic? Oh, I, you know, I still do some music criticism, I guess, from time to time. I did a bunch of this in the 80s, you know, like freelance rock criticism. I know I lived in London for a year and wrote for Melody Maker. I was writing for a lot of different newspapers and magazines, covering shows, interviewing artists. Record reviewing was really my, my thing, though. I know it was great fun. Like, I was really into it. Like, one thing, I, for many years, I got all kinds of free records and merchandise and shit, you know? Like, I'd come home from my, like, grad student day at Hopkins or whatever, and there'd be a giant box from MCA Records featuring all their country releases for the, you know, the month or something. And I'm going like, yeah, all right, this is good. You know, I got to interview some people like uh, Cindy Lauper, uh, let's see, uh, Chrissy Hine, In Excess. You know, I don't know. I, I had some really great experiences this way, I guess. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I really gravitate toward country, and that's usually what I write about if I write about music now. Do you write about modern country? Yeah, I just did like a, uh, I have a column that just came out today on the state of country music right now. I haven't I'll read send it you a- Yeah, yeah, please do. I haven't read it yet, but I got to be honest. I don't know if there's any genre that I like less than modern <laughs> country music. And I don't know if there's any genre I like more than classic country music. Yeah, okay, cool. I understand that. 
I really do. And that's basically maybe what I'm saying in this piece, too. But I might be able to direct you to some really cool contemporary artists, too. Please, please. So, you know, well, you're in Austin, for God's sakes. Like, sure. there's, yeah. Yeah, there's, good, there's good throwback country here and there. Yeah. It's usually not so popular. Sturgill Simpson is, you know, everyone yeah. knows him. But... All right. Yeah. So speaking of music, how can I become more proficient at the harmonica? <laughs> I've 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 a little bit off the harmonica. I'm trying to learn the mandolin. Well, I mean, the way I learned it, I guess, was just like playing all day with Sonny Boy Williamson and Little Walter records, you know, and just trying to reproduce what they were doing. Yeah, nice. I might have had a lesson or two with this guy named Pierre Beauregard. Okay. Uh, in DC, I'm, I'm happy to show you some stuff if we get together sometime, or we can do it by Skype even maybe. Sure. I mean, I play a little bit with a little, uh, you know, harmonica holder with some guitar, but yeah. I, I wouldn't say I'm a harp player by any stretch. Yeah, yeah. That's hard. Playing on a rack is hard. Well, I mean, if you if you can get away with it, even if you're kind of shitty at it, I think. Yeah, because of Dylan. <laughs> because Dylan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He inspired everyone to become like a shitty harmonica player. Yeah, well, that's, it still pisses me off, actually. <laughs> He's good sometimes. Like he's actually pretty good at harmonica sometimes. I think. Yes. Like I, I was like, you know, oh man. Like I mean, at least get the degree of competence that you got have on the guitar or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's a real instrument. You know, like yeah. yeah. Not just an excuse to wail in between lyrics. (laughs) Yeah. Also, he plays first position as opposed to cross harp. Okay. And and yeah, that has a certain like folky sound that works on a rack, I guess. Yeah. All right. So towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I list a person or an idea and I ask my guests to respond to each item in one minute or less. Are you down? I'm down. I was born for this, man. Awesome. (laughs) Wittgenstein. (laughs) I've written two pieces lately on how Wittgenstein is terribly overrated. I had professors in grad school for whom the only question, the questions, what is true and what did Wittgenstein really mean, were the same question. <laughs> All right. And, and man, I, I think he's an obscurantist. I think he's really trying to project the personality of a genius mm-hmm. in a way, like it's a persona. On the other hand, though, there, there's some pretty great ideas there, like family resemblance. And anyway, is that a minute? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Amazingly overrated. Okay. Yeah. Wu-Tang Clan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, those were great records, okay? Like, I I love that stuff in the early 90s, man. Like, those were just great records. And I I love the sound. I love where rap and New York rap went at that moment. I mean, I I respect Public Enemy, but I wouldn't, like, put the records on over and over again, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's really harsh. It's, like, really, like, it, it almost hurts to listen to. Mm-hmm. And it should, right? Like they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But man, like I took Wu Tang and maybe also the LA stuff, you know, uh, Snoop and Dre as such a relief from that, you know. But I love those early Wu Tang records and the solo records by, you know, RZA and all that stuff too. Cool. <laughs> the Mises Institute. <laughs> <laughs> man, I don't know nothing about the Mises Institute. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. I don't know. All right. Taoism. Oh, man. It's been central to my life in a lot of ways. Like, I, I teach it. You know, I teach Chinese philosophy. Again, that's problematic for somebody like me. I got sober in AA 
in 91 or 90 in Nashville. And I needed a higher power. And it wasn't going to be the Christian God at that point at all. And I called it the Tao. And I drenched myself in Taoism. And I, I love the Tao Te Ching. I love, I'm going to teach it again this year. I love Zhuangzi very much. And for a long time, I kind of identified as a Taoist. I've translated the Tao Te Ching myself with, with help. And um, yeah, it's one of the central texts in my mind. And I also think it's an anarchist political text as well. Right. Youth liberation. Youth liberation. Well, one thing, I'm an opponent of compulsory education, basically. I mean, like this is not a, uh, a popular position to take up, but I experienced it as an unbelievably oppressive. I, I experienced going to public school as you know, living in an Eastern European dictatorship or whatever. It's like living in Romania under Ceausescu. We're watching you all the time. We're going to tell you how to dress. You know, we're going to ring little bells and then your little body has to do exactly what you know, we say. It made me, well, maybe violently rebellious. <laughs> and yeah, I think this is really, really important. And I think we are surrounding our kids more and more with just like structures of authority that go down to their every decision, their every moment and stuff like this. And I just want, I just wish kids could play, man. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. That's beautiful. All right. Last one. All right. Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can check me out on YouTube and columns on this one, too. I think he's an idiot, dude. Okay, so, you know, the next debate is tomorrow night. Oh, God, don't remind me. Yeah, well, I mean, if, you, if you're watching, really listen to each sentence that comes out of Joe Biden's mouth and see whether it makes sense or whether it really says what you suspect he intends to say. <laughs> because it does not. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess what I did in a couple columns and, and also on YouTube is just cut and paste from the transcript of the last debate or a couple of interviews with Biden. And it's just nonsense. Now, I do have reservations that a lot of people have about, like, say, the crime bill or the or the kind of like sort of Clinton style Democrat who I think really prosecuted a racist agenda throughout most of my life. But it was just kind of like slightly disguised. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't count if it's a Democrat as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. OK, good. That's good. Yeah. But so I'm not a big fan of Joe Biden and I wasn't a big fan of Hillary Clinton along these lines either. But all right. So I've got a few Patreon questions and then we can go towards the end of the interview. The first Patreon question is, what do you think of the rise of national conservatism as an ideology? Yeah, that's interesting. And it's interesting what's going on in conservatism now. I mean, it's in it's in kind of a crisis in various circles, I guess, even as it seems ascendant. I mean, it's I don't think it's a new thing. Uh, I guess it's this Tucker Carlson, like, who's the name of this guy who's really spearheading this? Uh, Josh Hawley, the senator. Yeah. Anyway, this this one professor, I think, who's uh, associated with this. Well, it reminds me of communitarianism, first of all. You know, this kind of 80s and 90s, uh, I'm sure it's still people still identify this way. And they're associated with a kind of Burkean or David Brooksian style conservatism in the sense that they, they want to emphasize the importance of traditional institutions and identities, which they are specifically associating with the idea of the nation in this case. But maybe communitarians did that to some extent, too. And this is probably not as toxic as some other forms of conservatism. I don't know. 
Now, I'm not that interested in the concept of a nation, really. Like, I mean, most, I think most anarchists probably think of ourselves as basically cosmopolitan, not in the sense of like discounting anybody's traditions or anything, but just in the sense of worrying about the effects of like identifying with a nation or being a patriot in that sense or whatever. And I think that what we're seeing with nationalism in the world right now shows all those problems, right? Like Trumpian nationalism, Victor Orban or, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, where these people present as nationalists, whatever that means exactly. You know, so, for example, let's say the Kurdish nation. I mean, does that, that makes sense to talk about, I guess, even though it's not a it's not a nation state, but like a, a group of people affiliated by language and traditions and stuff like this. Like, I think you have to acknowledge the centrality of that to history. And I think those sorts of identifications aren't necessarily totally destructive or something like that. But, of course, you immediately inch into nationalist disasters or whatever, I guess, as well. I don't know. It's an interesting development, and it shows the splintering of conservatism. But I don't think conservatism ever made sense as a political ideology. It was always an alliance of really different kinds of positions. You know, like evangelical Christians and libertarians, let's say. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, they are as opposed to each other as either of them is opposed to the left, if you ask me. Or they should be. But they ended up in the same political party. And I don't think like the Republican alliance as it stood like in the Reagan years or in the Bush administrations, I don't think it made sense ideologically. I mean, there, there were, you know, I think conservatism is five or six different kinds of things that are mutually totally incompatible. Uh, and so it doesn't surprise me to see different tendencies emerging. Some people super enthused for Trump. Some people really repulsed by him in the conservative wing, et cetera. But anyway. Yeah. Do anarchists overrate or underrate family? Huh. It probably really depends on the anarchists. I think that many anarchists have been very critical of the institution of the family. One of the best things about anarchism is its association with feminism throughout its whole history. And, you know, from Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, with William Godwin to Emma Goldman and Voltaire Claire, et cetera, et cetera. And even the male anarchists have been by and large feminists, which is a good thing. And they've often been, as Emma Goldman certainly was, for example, critics of the family, the nuclear family, maybe critics of monogamy even. On the other hand, many other anarchists have kind of like viewed the, the family as relatively natural, relatively harmless, or a relatively decent social uh, uh, configuration. So I don't know that there's one... I, I kind of I kind of like the family, I guess, although I've had struggles with my own. Uh, <laughs> um, I wouldn't take any massive steps to destroy it as an existing institution or something like that myself. What's a good antidote for loneliness and alienation in the modern world? That's the last Patreon question, by the way. I don't have a cure for my own loneliness and alienation, so I don't think I can really present a cure for others. Okay. I think that we may overrate the degree to which loneliness and alienation can be cured, or we might overrate the degree to which any society can fix those things. So I think that, like, say, loneliness and alienation, they don't just come from capitalism. <laughs> They're pretty fundamental to many human experiences and many human lives in any system, I feel. Hmm. 
you know, like some, I mean, but some might do better than others, right? And like maybe a tribal culture or something has done much better with this kind of thing. I don't know. I think that any social group can be alienating or basically any social group is alienating. Like, <laughs> like you might just not identify. I don't think we can totally fix it, but maybe we can fix some of the pain that comes with it. And I don't maybe think we should. Like, I, I, I don't, if you weren't alienated from your social situation, I think, it, you know, if no one was alienated from American political culture or economic culture, I don't know what we would look like, man. Maybe like slaves, really, or something. I don't know. This mental slaves. I'm not sure. I think people are alienated. And like, I don't think it's fixable, although certain forms or in moments of it might be ameliorable, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Where can people go to check out all of your work? <laughs> uh, well, hit me on Twitter or something like that, and, and you'll see what I'm writing now. Uh, my blog, IHaveTheStorm.blogs.com, is kind of moribund, but I put up links and it has a list of my books and stuff like that. Google me and you'll find some disturbing things maybe, but you'll find, uh, you'll find stuff I'm writing as well. What's your handle on Twitter? Uh, at Crispin Sarwell, just my name. Okay. What's the one thing people should know about radical politics before taking a deep dive into them? <laughs> <laughs> now, the first couple things that ran through my head were just, you know, really cynical, man, which sucks. <laughs> okay, like, I mean, I had to say, it's not going to work out. How about this? Like, it's essential, man. Like, it's all right. I mean, we, actually, we, we are in a, in a somewhat more radical moment. Even like AOC, you know, and stuff like that, or even the fact that people are identifying as socialists, you know, like I think radicalism, I guess, on both sides is coming up more. You know, I, I mean, my own experience was I don't know what to say about this. I mean, I come from the, from out of the civil rights and peace movement eras, which were really when I was a kid. And a lot of my experience has been feeling like it just it, it kind of didn't work out or just wondering whether it can possibly work out. But I I'm glad people are still trying, man. Like I but I don't know how much I'm trying myself except just to express it. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. All right, everyone needs to go follow Crispin, buy his books, read his blog. I want to thank you again, Crispin, for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Joel. It's been fun. Cool, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, We'll talk to you again. Great. everyone enjoyed my interview with Crispin Sartwell. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to see more, visit our website at nonservium.media. There, you'll find the full catalog of our interviews, as well as links to our YouTube, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Patreon accounts. If you'd like to help us keep this project going, consider contributing financially through Patreon. When you become a patron, you'll get a sneak peek of who our next guest is, as well as have an opportunity to contribute an interview question for that guest. So if you think you have any interesting questions to ask, or if you just want to help us keep the lights on, head on over to patreon.com slash nonserviummedia to join the team. You can also help us reach a larger audience simply by liking and sharing this episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.